Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world. Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at AsianHustleNetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. He's one of my good friends, Gordon Sway. Gordon is an entrepreneur and an investor located in Los Angeles. Gordon, welcome to the podcast. Hi, say Brian. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. So we're so blessed. I think this is like Gordon's first podcast or something. It is. Don't tell them. (laughs) (laughs) We love love popping those uh, podcast cherries, right? Right, right. You definitely got mine. All right, man. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about your upbringing, who you are, and what do you currently do? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, hey, everyone. My name is Gordon. I uh, Upbringing-wise, I was born in Los Angeles. I actually grew up in Korea and mostly Beijing during my adolescent years. I was there from, like, Beijing from 98 to 2008, where we got to see the crazy boom, double GDP. What I do today is, I guess, by day, I manage an early-stage venture fund. By night, I manage a syndicate of investors to invest in alternative assets. And that's pretty much me in a nutshell. I mean, that's awesome to hear, dude. To hear that you're doing so much and about the the upbringing too, splitting your time between Korea and Beijing. What was that like? And how did you end up in that position? Right. So my 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 dad was always, I think, an entrepreneur his whole life. My mother, on the other hand, worked corporate. So we actually left LA back in the early 90s during the like, California economy crash. Went to Korea for a little bit, but eventually moved to Beijing because I just think Beijing at that time was such a great market. And my mother was there for expat opportunities to, to work in corporate. Yeah, growing up in Beijing during that time, I think affected like a lot of how I looked at life because you, you saw this like crazy, you know, like when we went to school there, we had to travel like 40 minutes to go to McDonald's. And then by like, couple years later, there's McDonald's in every corner. And then parents, you know, working there, you saw their career climb super, super fast, but also go through insane, like unusual, unre- like regulatory hurdles and everything. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy, right? To be in China during that time and see the rapid development of China. Being in that fast-paced environment and seeing the Chinese economy essentially blow up as you're growing up, how did that affect your view on entrepreneurship compared to how things are in the Western side? Oh, man. Okay. So I, I think the way I viewed startups or being an entrepreneur in China back then compared to the U.S. was just that the, the culture was so different. And this is kind of goes beyond just me growing up there because I went back and forth a lot after graduating. But, you know, in a, a clear example, I always give a lot of friends I do business with is that like a a contract to do a business, to start a business, let's say between you and I, we started a startup here, we have the operating agreement. The, you know, the, the contract could get very, very long and very, very wordy. Right. A contract in China for, let's say, the same exact deal or something, you know, like a $50 million deal might just be three, four pages, size 12, size 14 font. And then kind of just like, all right, here's my signature and my thumbprint. So I think that goes to kind of reflect a lot of the way people saw business, where it was more, 
I guess, relationship relationship based handshake agreement back then. But that obviously led to a lot of, you know, denial of the handshake agreements, right? So you saw a lot of like problems in China where things would fall short because deals were made that weren't truly legally packaged. So I think that just naturally affected the growth of entrepreneurs there. Oh well, I mean that's that's really interesting to hear too, right? Having deals based upon handshakes—it's kind of unheard of in the U.S. side, <laughs> you know. Right, right, right. There's so much structure here, so much regulation, and just a personal question too: like, would you prefer doing business in America versus China? Like, what would you pick? Now you know both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, me, me personally, I think definitely, definitely the U.S. Mm-hmm. It's you know the, the framework is set in place very well, and then I think entrepreneurship. In general, the you know when it comes to like innovation and startups has always just been the strongest in the U.S. I mean, China today now compared to back then, I think the bigger concerns are like, you know, I guess government or just being able to like move in and out of the country, et cetera. Which you know mm-hmm. we, we won't go into you know too much, but of course, definitely um, U.S. Yeah, I understand. I, I feel like we go into too much. Our podcast can be censored. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. political podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I want to dive into your work too. I mean, you're you have your hands in a lot of things in an in investment side, right? You have your hands in real estate, you have your hands in startups and everything. What sparked this interest in you for investing? You're basically investing in everything, right? Right, right. How how did you um, spark this interest and like how did you learn on your own? Yeah. I I guess the immediate thought I had when you asked that question is I've always been that guy who is like not an expert at anything, right? Like, you know, not, not good at one specific study, let's say science in high school or whatnot. And I, I do think I have a lot of interest in things. So I, I pick up things faster. I look at things a lot, but I can never become a deep expert in anything. So to be honest, I, you know, I, I like to invest in founders, for example, that are actually like one inch wide and 10 miles deep. I'm the exact opposite, but uh, kind of sparking my interest wise, I think growing up, I was never very, I was never like really a, a good student in high school. I was more bratty. I like to hustle. I like I didn't like following rules, and that kind of in many ways overlap with the entrepreneurial spirit. So I think as I went to college and started getting my stuff together, I realized that a lot of the skills that I did as kind of like a hustler in high school was transferable, and then that kind of led me in a career doing startups, being a founder, having a bunch of failures, and then ultimately kind of doing you know okay in a couple of things and start investing. Yeah. So all that's the awesome. investments I do generally are in the earliest stages of life cycle. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, let's hear about Gordon, the high school hustler. What what did you hustle back in high school? Oh man, okay. I just really hope my mom doesn't see this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So in high school, I what what created the hustle, I guess, was but I was you know I I, I slept in. I skipped. I always skipped my first class, so I couldn't take the bus to school. I had to take a cab. I had a girlfriend. My allowance is very little. So how can I like? I guess have like find ways to earn money to pay for this, right? So I had a, like a bad hobby back then where I used to like motorbike. So my, my father had his own business. He gave me like this sidecar, you know, it was like World War II, like, three seater, and kind of let me drive it around, which kind of like ticked that like scratch or created that itch for speed and everything else. And China back then was like you know no regulation, didn't need an ID. But I you know my I told my parents I wanted like a two wheeler motorbike, like a sports bike. And then they, they didn't allow it, obviously, you know, like 15, right? Like who, which kind of parent would, but I, I got engaged with a, with a, with a motorbike shop, a local motorbike shop where the relationship I had with them is that if I can find them buyers in the international market, cause I went to international school in China. So we had like a you know very American expat community. If I could find them buyers, I could take the, whatever markup, right? So let's say this motorbike costs 
a thousand dollars. But to the expat, you know, the dad or whatever, they they're used to buying this this equivalent bike in the US for five thousand dollars. So I would sell it for two or three thousand and then make a thousand, two thousand dollars and then use that to fund kind of my lifestyle expenses in high school. That's insane. I, I can't remember myself doing something like that in high school. I don't think my my guts are big enough to, to deal with like a thousand, two thousand. That sounds like a lot of money, right? Yeah, yeah. It was it felt like an insane amount. I was like, oh my God, I could go, you know, take go to the best restaurant and <laughs> yeah, 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 I was like TGIF, you know, because it was super expensive back then, even TGIF in China. So that's crazy, dude. I'm I'm glad that you had you always had that hustle mentality to you, and it's still reflective in the person that you are today, right? And the fact that you kind of carried it over and continue to evolve. I don't think you give yourself enough credit. Like I I definitely think that you're definitely more of one of the most detail oriented people that I know. Just your every single follow up that you do, every single message that you send is like properly read. <laughs> So I think you should give yourself more credit, dude. Like I, I can see definitely see why you've been so successful for 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 so long. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's too kind, too kind. But hopefully, a long way to go. <laughs> of course, <laughs> and it's always day one, right? You're always hustling, getting getting started with something new. Yeah, I mean, same to you, man. That's how I got. You know, I remember still meeting you when we on the clubhouse days, right? COVID nineteen yeah. clubhouse days, Asian Hustle Network. What is this? And then come along, Brian. Definitely one of the biggest hustlers in the market. Right now. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. the kind words, dude. But let's hear about your your first entrepreneurial run, right? As you mentioned earlier, you did a few things that failed. What did you do mm-hmm. and how did it fail and what you learned from that experience? Oh, okay. So one of the first one I did, I guess, like proper startup was actually in senior year of college. So I went to college in the States in LA. I actually invested into a technology called MOF, Metal Organic Framework. It's a it's a battery technology that basically coats lithium ion. All right. So like imagine if your cell phone battery can be coated by this special MOF material that allows it to be charged super fast. So this was like 10, 15 years ago, right? Basically the technology should have allowed the iPhone to charge full in like minutes. Amazing technology backed by like you know invented by this protege in China, right? So, and it was a U.S. project. So I invested in the I invested in the founding team in the U.S. And then after investing, I actually asked them, "Hey, while you're developing this technology and trying to get like bought out or like team up with like companies like Samsung and LG, why don't you let me? Why don't you license me this this battery and let me create a consumer product? Right? Like, let me create a battery bank or like a battery charger, and then and then sell it online. It'll be marketing for the technology, but I also get to recoup my investment." So we, uh, we did actually one of the first crowdfunding campaigns. This is like when Kickstarter, if you're familiar with Kickstarter, it just kind of started. We, we launched on, you know, Kickstarter. We raised like 50, our goal was $50,000. We raised it in like less than three days, ended up raising a hundred thousand dollars, had all the, you know, had all the initial capital to begin ma- manufacturing, flew back to China. Everything was going great. And then once we met the manufacturer, we realized three huge issues. Like one, the underlying technology was not stable. Two, the technology to support the fast charging was did not exist in the market. Like no one created a charger that could charge that fast, right? And then number three, the manufacturer of this battery like plant was trying to poach our scientists and give him money and just buy him out and just tell him, to, hey, why don't you just supply all of our batteries instead and forget this U.S. company? You know, fast forward to like the end of that trip, we we ended up like still delivering all the products to our customers on Kickstarter. I ended up selling on Amazon, but in that in that period, I learned. I, mean, I learned a few things, but you know, one, you know, definitely trust, like definitely work with people that you trust, but also trust that those people are going to change, right? We trusted the scientists, but you know, unfortunately, you know, whatever happened, I also learned definitely do due diligence. So this is why I guess I'm, you know, as you're saying earlier, super detailed. I'm super, super like 
big believer of due diligence. And then lastly, you can avoid it. Don't do hardware products, but I'm just joking. Hardware is great, but I just don't like hardware personally. I, I was about to say something regarding that too. I feel like everything you choose is like hard, <laughs> you know, like it's like high overcost, hardware, supply issues, all these type of things. Right, right, but, right, right, right. But my hat's off to you, right? As you mentioned earlier, you mentioned that your dad had like a, like a motor company or something like that. That explains a lot. I think if I were to start a company, it'd be something along appliances just because it's what I'm used to, right? That's what my dad started his company on, selling appliances. Mm. So, you know, I mean, the great thing nowadays is like to start a company is actually really, really cheap and kind of easy, right? right? It's just yeah, a matter yeah, of exactly. putting, putting together your idea and actually doing the work to make something happen. And that's where I want to talk to you about with your transition to becoming an investor, right? Mm. What made you decide to move from the operating side to an investor side? And as an investor, how has that been different from being an operator? I, I think one of the like, personal reasons why I started investing was, so, so one of the reasons why I started even the VC fund was actually because I was hoping that, you know, it could maybe find me opportunities to inspire. I mean, aside from you know, getting returns and everything, it kind of inspired me to like find a new idea, a new project to work on, and just kind of be on the other side of the table to see what's out there, right? When, you, when you're an entrepreneur, all you really see and focus on is just yourself and what's in front of you and like just your immediate network. So I, I kind of wanted to be on the other side. And then, yeah, what was the other follow-up question? Sorry, I forgot. My bad. Yeah, yeah. I just want to see what's what's been the biggest difference between being an operator and an investor. Mm, right. So I, I guess the similarities between an investor and an operator is that or maybe not investing for myself, but like more of a fan man, fund manager or syndicate is that as a entrepreneur, everyone is your, your boss, your customers are your boss, your employees are your boss. You don't want them to leave. Your investors are your boss. I don't think a lot of VCs or syndicates actually say this, but I actually think in the VC world, everyone's your boss too, right? Your LPs are your boss. You got to beg them, Hey, you know, invest in my fund. The, the strong portfolio companies that you invest in are also your boss. It's like, Hey, would you like to take my money, please? I want to be able to invest in this opportunity. And then also like the network that you build is like, hey, can you know, the founders, the other VCs, everyone's your boss, you want to share deals, right? So ultimately, I think both worlds, it's very similar in that you always have to like push and then you're always not really like the, the idea of like how people are painted as bosses on TV. The difference is on the other hand is I think that as an entrepreneur, it's 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 a lot harder, to be honest. It's, you know, you... And especially as you grow a business and you have people work for you, 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 the level of responsibility is very different than, let's say, just being responsible for capital. Right? You're responsible for people's families. You're responsible for people who like to, you know, dedicate their life following you and working with you, etc. And I think that'd be probably one of the biggest differences. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, just being able to see both sides of the spectrum and and position yourself to definitely succeed and help. It's really awesome to to hear that, right? And kind kind of curious too, like. Uh, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, it's a lot harder to be a, a you know entrepreneur. As an investor now, how have you been able to provide value to your portfolio companies that you invest into? Yeah, so it, it definitely depends case by case. And my our our team, we, we like to say that we all come from you know founder backgrounds, so we do kind of understand what it's like to be a founder. So we we say this, and it, it isn't always taken too seriously, but we always want to have an open door. We always want to hustle for you. Right. I, I think the founders that have realized how much we mean that when they, you know, is the ones who like call me at 1 a.m. and then I'm there. Right. But ultimately, I think it depends on what they have their need on and us just trying our best to find it. So whether it's finding them customers or find them access to, you know, I guess, manufacturing products, 
et cetera, et cetera, advisors, whatever we can offer, I think. And I think it's very general of an answer, but just it, it takes a lot to back that word, right? Yeah, anything. I definitely, definitely know what you mean, right? Just being there, helping them out. Just even having a conversation really helps too, because the founder life is brutal, right? There's so many ups and downs and so many cycles, so many unforeseen things. Uh, I think the consensus on the Asian Hustle Network podcast is that being a founder, there's more bad days than good days for sure. Right. right, but you just have to let your good day sort of marinate a bit, so you feel a little better about the next day. Right, 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 right. Exactly. I absolutely agree. Yeah, and I want to hear about the process that you select companies to invest into. I think that's the part where people in Asian Hustle Network are very interested in. Right, they understand mm. that there there are investors. They're pitching to investors, but as an investor yourself, what things do you typically look for inside investments that make sense for you? Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I guess I'm going to speak in two different, like we're a couple different hats. So, you know, one, I have a VC firm fund that we invest in early stage, right? Small non-lead checks. I have a syndicate where we bring angel investors that are business leaders and family offices together to invest in opportunities that may not be VC tech related, right? And then I'm also an angel investor. So the advice I would give entrepreneurs is number one, first know your audience. Okay. So let's say, you know, it's a hardware startup, which my VC fund does not invest in, right? We specifically do not invest in hardware. We only invest in digital technologies. Know your audience, because if you're not in line with your thesis, it's just a pass and you're just wasting your time. Angel investors, on the other hand, definitely have more of an emotional aspect, right? I make angel investments to things that I have passions for that I may not be expecting outsized returns for, or things that may be more stable, such as you mentioned, like my real estate investments, right? So when people pitch to me in real estate, I'm asking, how do I not lose my principal? Versus in early stage startup, I'm like, oh, I don't care about my principal. How am I going 100x? Right. And then the syndicate side is, you know, to be honest, a lot of that stuff is like how well you can, I guess, connect to the value add of the syndicate members. So it depends on the, again, the focuses of the industry. So, you know, know your audience would be the best start, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely really good advice, right? Knowing your audience and understand that, that there are a lot of VC funds out there, I would say. And like each of the VC funds have a focus that can that can offer help. But then a lot of founders, especially first-time founders and early stage founders, tend to grab the first amount of money that comes in their direction. How do you feel about this? Do you feel how do you feel about the the weight of money? Right. And I like to ask mm. this question because I feel like not all not all investment dollars are the same. Sometimes you want right, to right. get fewer dollars for investors that can open more gates for you, more doors for you. Right, that can be there along the process, but I want to hear your take on this. It can be just give you a hot of a take as you want because I'm very curious. Okay, yeah. So, are we talking about like the first dollars they ever get, or like just just as a first time founder and you realize that you're going out and pitching ideas? Let's say you get rejected like ten times, and this one investor where you're kind of iffy about, say, "Hey, I like your idea. Let me put in like 200k." We're actually not sure about that money and who and, and about that person's character, <laughs> right? Right, right, right. I just frame them in a situation like that. What would you do? What advice would you would you give to these founders? Oh man, okay. I think as broad, like overall, I would just you know, if you're just starting off, I would always recommend take the money in general. Okay, but there are definitely things that you should worry about, right? Like you don't you don't want to you don't want an investor that's just gonna give you a small amount and give you or even a big amount and just give you a hard time all the time. I want updates every month. I want blah, blah, blah. Like they're going to call you. Where's my money? Give it back. And it just, you know, lawsuits, everything. So before taking money from anyone, I would probably set the tone of expectation of just discussing with them. Hey, what are you expecting when it comes to like updates and your returns and blah, 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 blah. Right. Without, without killing the deal. You don't want to scare them off either. 
right? There, there is definitely, I guess, investors that bring a lot more value than just raw dollars. Um, but I think you only consider that if you're discussing like different types of valuations, right? If this guy is going to give you a lot of money and make your company worth big versus this guy gives you a little money but wants it to be worth very cheap, that's a completely different, I guess, category. But, but I, yeah, not to like shoot myself in the foot, but I, I don't know. As a founder, you know, you, you just hope for the best that your investor is going to bring value. But you need to really depend on yourself and your team that you can drive the business forward with the capital you're asking for. Everything that they give as value is always just bonus. It isn't, don't see it as a requirement. Don't see it as, you know, something you must receive that, that you're owed, right? The capital is already, is already a big bet for someone to just give you money to believe in you. you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really good perspective, right? And I mean, being a first-time founder myself and raising money, that was a situation where I personally felt like I didn't know what to do. So to my surprise, when I talk to more people as I go out there and network to with more new founders, you know, a lot of people are in very much similar situations. We just There isn't enough material out there that tells you like a black and white answer what to do because honestly, it's really not, right? It's almost like an art. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely like an art. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, for sure, dude. Let's switch over to talk about your real estate investments. How do mm. that's crazy, right? Every time I look at your IG story, I always see that you're building something, you're looking at something, you're driving around in your awesome truck. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how did how did you get yourself involved into real estate and how has the real estate philosophy differ from your startup philosophy? Yeah, so okay, I, I don't know if my portfolio construction is the best one by you know at all so like people who are listening don't take my advice i guess but for me i you know because i invest in startups i do startups i i invest in a lot of high risk alternative assets real estate to me is a way of like countering that and you know being on the other side of the spectrum being more of like preserving capital right so uh, to put simply you know investing in startups is like wealth creation you're hoping that one becomes a million and it moves alpha for you, right? While real estate investing, although there are a lot of projects out there that give you fantastic returns that are even comparable to VC as a fund perspective, it's generally wealth preservation. Meaning, hey, if I park my capital here, it's not going to disappear, right? The land is always going to be there, right? This is why there's, you know, real estate makes the most millionaires, but I would think that tech makes probably the biggest billionaires. So that's kind of the way I see it. But so for real estate for me, a lot of the big projects that you see on my social media is actually me more of an investor, where I invest and I support projects. Personally, I also do single family. I wanted to do Airbnbs, which is a great cap on your on your property, which is why I bought the truck actually, because I during COVID, Joshua Tree, for people who are familiar with LA, was a huge hot market. Like they were booked out 100% of the time. So I bought a place, got a truck, driving out there all the time. I had to get my hands dirty and I literally put material in the back. But, uh, but we ended up selling that property after owning it for for five days, I think, four days. It's crazy. But, uh, but yeah, someone came in with an offer I couldn't refuse, I guess. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, that is the power of real estate. And I absolutely agree with you, right? I feel like, I mean, it's going gonna, gonna to be weird for me to say this, but I always feel like real estate, it's like a better way to store your money. It's like a better bank. <laughs> you get better returns. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Real estate can loan you money too, right? Your home can loan you money. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like with startups, is is obviously higher risk, higher reward type of mentality. But I think the diverse being able to like diverse portfolio is the way to go in in the future right, for right. sure. So Gordon, I'm kind of curious. Where do you see yourself in like five years, ten years from now? 
what is the complete version of Gordon that you want to become? Mm. I hope it's not complete yet, to be honest. I, I do believe that like the whole life, you know, it, in the perfect world, I could just keep growing myself and keep optimizing and become stronger at what I do. I mean, obviously, you know, you can get to an age where it becomes harder, but it, it, it's it's weird that you ask that to me now because I, I do think in the past three years, especially during COVID, it's, it's created like a workaholic nature that I didn't have before. So now when you ask me five, 10 years later, it's it's all I can think about is like career, right? You know, how big can I do the things I do? How much impact can I do? And it, it's, it's hard to, I guess, describe it, but I, I would probably want to be in a place where I can successfully, actually, one thing I always wanted to do was be able to successfully actually incubate companies and ideas, right? So aside from, you know, being a founder, so today it's, you know, Oh, I learned experience as a founder and now I'm investing in founders because I believe I have some pattern recognition. And let's say if that continues going well, can I create businesses with founders and incubate and grow multiple ones? Because end of the day, there's only one version of me, but you could have many, many different projects that you've grown, you know, and the, the impact gets exponentially bigger, right? I don't want to be limited to my own, my own physical working body and soul. If that answers the question of five to 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an yeah, awesome perspective. Big that you have too and thank you for sharing that so i guess as we're nearing the end of the podcast this is an awesome time to ask that continual question of what i just asked you know as as you mentioned like you want to make sure that you you're incubating founders and new ideas and, and supporting them how do you feel about the future of aapi founders in the tech space mm. yeah so aapi means american agent right so the founders in the u.s right i, I think from that Asian perspective, Sorry about okay. That. Oh no, 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 not at all. I just wanted to. Well, yeah. So I, I think me being in the U.S. and I guess I think it's a great time to be a founder in general. Like you mentioned, it's never been cheaper to start. You know, never more options, never more opportunities. And as an Asian founder, I think it's at least compared to the past, also one of the better times to do it because you know we're we're at a point where we're at a point where I think Asians are getting better and better at positioning themselves. To have a seat on the table. But the reason actually why going kind of way back to, I mean, to the earlier the conversation, why I started my syndicate was because when I started investing in the U.S. and being here, you know, at a longer periods of stretch, stretches of time because of COVID, I realized I couldn't get access to a lot of these deals that I wanted to invest in, right? And then, you know, whatever circles that they were that were not Asian, I did feel that it was limiting for me and a lot of people I grew up with from Asia who are sophisticated investors who have the capital to deploy. But it's it's rapidly changing, especially during COVID. I mean, obviously, we've seen a lot of things that's come up that's kind of triggered this, but I, I do think it's a great time to be an a Asian founder. There's a lot of support systems that for Asian founders specifically that did not exist 10 years yeah. ago in the U.S. Definitely, yeah. definitely. A shout out, a few on top of my head, shout out to Hyphen Fund, Gold House, and even you guys, you know, you guys are killing it, but, you know. You guys, also... for sure. Asian <laughs> it's in your name, yeah. <laughs> You know, we're trying to form the the foundation to support the future founders in the in the world, right? Because you're right, right, dude. I think for us growing up and even starting this couple, only like only a couple of years back, there wasn't a lot of communities like this to support the ecosystem. But now we do, and we're turning in the right direction. So I'm happy. Right, right. No, yeah. for sure, absolutely, I absolutely agree. Definitely, dude. So, Gordon, how can our listeners find out more about you and reach out to you online? Yeah, I think you guys you provide handles, right? So, I think mm -hmm. LinkedIn is probably the best way. I do check my LinkedIn inbox. I think for anything professional, and then and then maybe email. Yeah, maybe we will set up an email or just provide be, an email. Just be careful yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe just LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, I think LinkedIn. Gordon, 
Gordon TSUI, there's not a lot of me out there. So a lot of that name combo pretty easy to find. Awesome. We'll include all that in the show notes. But Gordon, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.